6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. So persecution is not the same thing as a period coming, which is defined by Christ himself as the great tribulation. That's a very special case we're going to deal with when we get to the next chapter. Remember the promise to Timothy. Everybody misses one of these words here. It says, if you suffer with him, you will also reign with him. There's a widespread presumption within the Christian body that if you're, a, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, you're going to rule with him. It doesn't say that. You may be eligible for the opportunity, yes. But you'll notice whenever that's talked about, there's a conditional in front of it. What's the first two-letter word in that sentence? If. If you suffer with him, you shall also reign with him. Think about it. You need to be a metakoi, a partaker. That's really what you're called to. And there'll be people in heaven that are saved that are not necessarily ruling with him. There's going to be all kinds of people in the kingdom. There'll be subjects and sovereigns. And that's a whole study we won't derail tonight, but let's go on. Verse 7, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And he goes on. He's speaking here of the day of the Lord. And that's for the next, uh, the, uh, next four verses, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And uh, we covered some of that in the previous two chapters of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. Now, he comes for us, saints, but now he's coming with them. Chapter 4. Four and five, he came for his saints. He snatched them forcibly. The word harpazo means. But now he's coming with his saints. Hmm. Matthew 25 deals with the judgment of the Gentiles. Ezekiel 20 deals with the judgment of the Jews. Not necessarily simultaneously, different occasions, but they're well dealt with in the scripture. Moving on. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who? Vengeance. This is not vindictiveness, simply the administration of unwavering justice. God's holiness is at stake here. You know, it's interesting as we touch on this, I'm doing a personal study, re-examining the issue of the fear of God. So many people misunderstand that. I have been given several wonderful sermons and messages on, well, it doesn't mean terror, it means reverent, reverential awe. And there are places, there's 17 different words involved, by the way, in the study. That's one of them. And so, uh, yes, very often uh, we're called to a rever reverential awe, in awe of God, no question. No, there are also places that the men of God trembled before His majesty. There's a place for that. And there's an, we need to understand Yes, we're beneficiaries of His grace, praise God. We're beneficiaries of His mercy, praise God. 
But let's never lose sight of the fact that he's God. And he's a holy God. You know, it was a few generations ago, you took comfort in a case where you discovered that one of our elected officials or a judge or somebody was a God-fearing man. That was a common phrase in our vocabulary. Well, he's a God-fearing person. I might have some doctrinal difference of view with him, but he's a God-fearing person. Do you ever hear that phrase today? It's, it's absent from our vocabulary. There are many politicians that would shun that label. They're not trying to pose as a God-fearing. They're anxious not to be labeled God-fearing because that might hurt their re-election possibilities or something. I mean, how, how far we've fallen. Absolutely stunning to see how far we've fallen. We don't understand that we have had a sense of security in our country because we're not a democracy, we're a republic. What's the difference? A republic is subject to the rule of law. And we could take comfort in the Constitution. It protects our rights. There's a Bill of Rights. We, we take comfort that we're protected, not by a personality, but by a rule of law. And what is terrifying to us today, is the, as we examine that, is that it's no longer operative. We're no longer under a rule of law. The Constitution isn't being followed. We have a president who refuses to even show his birth certificate to demonstrate he's qualified. And we go on and on with judges. We go on and on with the educational establishment. We go on and on with the financial and legal. Every sector of society is no longer lawful. It's not illegal. It's lawless. And lawlessness is one of the signs we're going to talk about when we get to the next chapter. We have a right to be terrified because of the absence of the rule of law in our culture. We've come to take that for granted, except in our recent memory, we have Vicki Weaver assassinated by the head of the FBI. She had no charges against her. And you could go on and on and on and on to come to the realization that we've got some serious legal problems. No, there's a, our comfort, our ultimate comfort, is not in the rule of law of this country, our ultimate comfort comes that we serve a holy God who has gone to such extremes, such extremes, to take us on. Knowing that there is, he's gone to such extremes to perform in our stead that which we could not achieve for ourselves. So we have a God that's merciful, his grace is incredible, but let's not forget as we go that he's God, he's holy. Anyway. It's interesting, though, another aspect of this is an example of how the early church ascribed functions to the Lord Jesus Christ that the Old Testament reserved for yod heh or the Yahweh, or the, however you want to pronounce it. You quickly discover by the ascriptions here that what was yod heh in the Old Testament becomes a Lord Jesus Christ in the New. Realize that those become congruent concepts. Now, when you get to the field of eschatology, study of the end times, the first why in the road, many people have different views, but your first fundamental choice point is, are you amillennial or premillennial? As you obviously know, most of us here hold the view that the millennium that the Bible talks about is very true, very literal, going to happen. In fact, it's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And that's what ties the whole thing together. I'm not here to get into that more because I think most of us understand that. But, but we, many people don't realize what amillennial includes. 
The Amillennialist thinks that the millennium, Revelation 20, is just allegorical. And uh, he treats the scripture with what's called a soft hermeneutic, that this is just symbolic, it's just uh, allegorical, what have you. Now, the day, this is not just a difference in viewpoint. The amillennialist, whether he realizes or not, runs the risk of calling God a liar, because he ends up having to explain away or dismiss or put under the carpet dozens and dozens of commitments by God to Israel that he argues is not going to happen. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. And I don't want to get into all that except to alert you to that. That's the, the dangers there. Now, see, amillennialism makes God guilty of not keeping his unconditional covenants to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the Jews. That is the nation Israel. What are the promise of the land in Genesis 12 and 13 and 17? Promise of the land, a kingdom, and a greater to the greater son of David, the Messiah as king. And Psalm 89 alone is, lays that all out. The promise of restoration to the land of Israel from the worldwide dispersion establishment of Messiah's kingdom. That's all in Scripture in Jeremiah 31 and in about four major chapters of Ezekiel. Hammer that home. And promise that the, any remnant of the Israelites will be saved is also laid out in the New Testament as well as the Old. So as we study eschatology, that's our first choice. There, is, there was a view called post-millennial. There were people that argued, well, we're already in the millennium. As we got into the 20th century, which is the bloodiest century in human history, that view really evaporated and took some outer views. Preterism is a form of amillennialism, and post-constructionism is also a form of post-millennialism. But most of us here are premillennial, and so I won't, re I won't rehash all of that, except to highlight that within that view, the question is, will the church go through the Great Tribulation or not? Okay. Is the rapture take place after the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or before the tribulation? Well, if you think the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, that's called post-tribulationalism. If you think it's somewhere in the middle of Daniel's 70 weeks, they call themselves mid-tribulationalists. It's an awkward label for a lot of reasons. But pre-tribulation is what most of us are. Now, the real point I'm making is, if I know how you feel about the text, the Word of God, I can predict where you'll come out. See, most denominations today, especially the denominations which came out of the Reformation, are amillennial and post-tribulational. They inherit an eschatology of Augustine, which is amillennial, and the tribulation idea, they think the church will go through the tribulation. That's their view. Those of us that would be labeled by many as fundamentalists, we take the Bible literally, we take it seriously, as the way I would put it, we are premillennial and pre-tribulational. Now, the reason I'm making this point is not what, that one is right or wrong. That's not the point. Good scholars have different views. But if I know your hermeneutics, your theory of interpretation, if you're willing to allegorize major portions of Scripture, I know you'll be on the left side of this chart. You'll drift towards being amillennial and post-tribulational. That's a classic view among many theologians. And a lot of good minds have written books on that for centuries. If you take the Bible very seriously, I'll say literally, you're on the right end of this. And you'll fall somewhere between these depending on your hermeneutics, your theory of interpretation. You with me so far? That's going to be useful to you as we go. Not that we're right or wrong. That's not my point here. Okay. See, amillennialism began with Augustine back in the 4th century. And he leaned heavily on the allegorizations of origin. And that became the foundation of anti-Semitism. I've written papers on the, going from Augustine to Auschwitz because there's a direct link. If you want to blame the Holocaust on anyone, you blame it to the silent pulpits in Germany during those early years. 
But it's reviving again. That's one reason I'm bringing this up. You're going to see amillennialism in the form of predatorism and other things rise, and that's going to open the door for the church to become anti-Semitic, anti-Israel. Watch out for that. That does. We get a lot of mail by people who are really upset because they think that uh, many of us are too soft on Israel and too hostile to the Palestinians. No, we're not. The Palestinians are following a myth that's not historically correct, but that's not the point. Those that are Christians... We should pray for and, and, and have compassion for. The fact that Jewish doesn't make them right, we don't agree with Israel's politics. That's not the point. Dis- distinguish the national realities from the, 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 our posture as, to them as believers and so on. So anyway, if we get into post-tribulationists, there's a number of major uh, writers, Gundry and Ladd are perhaps the best, Walter Martin, lean that way. That's a little more complicated. But uh, Pat Robertson, Jim McKeever, these are classical post-tribulationists. There are mid-tribulationists around. Harrison, J. Sidlow Baxter, I like his books. I learn a lot from him, but I don't happen to agree with that eschatology. Marv Rosenthal has a fabulous ministry, great ministry. But his book, so-called Pre-Wrath, is not taken seriously by most serious students of eschatology for a lot of reasons. So that doesn't happen to be his strongest suit. Pre-tribulation, of course, include the classic of, by Dwight Pentecost, certainly John Walvoord, Ryrie, Feinberg, Fruchtenbaum, Charles Dyer, Grant Jeffrey. Chuck Smith, Kim LaHaye, and ourselves and others are in that category. And uh, anyway, moving on. Verse 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? You know, it's interesting how there's very little in, uh, in the Scriptures about heaven. It's an interesting study. Uh, in fact, uh, don't confuse heaven with the kingdom from heaven. There's a lot said about the kingdom from heaven that, come, that Jesus is going to set up on the earth and rule for a thousand years. That's not heaven. It's the kingdom from heaven. So that's one of the reasons we have some fuzzy notions about heaven and many people confuse the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom from heaven. Because we've discovered that in Matthew, who's the only one that uses that term, it's a genitive of source, not a genitive of apposition. Meaning that it's the kingdom that came from heaven. It's on the earth, has a capital, has a king, the floor plan of the palace is in nine chapters of the, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel and so on. But there's very little uh, scripture about heaven itself. There's even less by, about hell. There's some idioms used, and we know enough about it that we really don't want to know any more about it. Okay? Jesus said more about it than anyone else did, by the way. So you can't deal with that subject without dealing with what Jesus said about that subject. But these verses here say it all, really. And I want to highlight, though, there's no such thing as annihilation. That's a physical concept, and we're here in the non-physical realm. The concept of annihilation is just not in Scripture. We'd love to believe that the lost will just disappear. Okay, if you're not saved, you're gonna, it just ends it all. No, it doesn't, because you're eternal whether you're saved or not. And that's, the, that's the heavy uh, issue that's in front of us. We talked about that last time. Eternal destruction is simply separation from the Lord. The final disaster is forever. You and I have no grasp to imagine what being separated permanently from God himself means to us. And so these other things are idioms to try to get across those implications. Anyway, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all of them that believe, because a testimony among you was believed in that day. Glorified in, interesting construction, glorified in. Not glorified among them, like in a theater or a stadium. 
not glorified by them as if they were spectators, like an audience that watches and worships. No, no. Not through them or by means of them as if they were be mirrors that reflect his image and glory. That's not what he's talking about. The Greek construction here is very emphatic and very specific. But rather as a filament, which itself glows with light and heat when energy passes through it. A dramatic way to demonstrate, we'd have a, to have a clear light bulb here with a filament in it, which off, and we turn it on, the filament itself is, the, is, the, is, is it's glorified in the filament. That's what this uh, in means. See, a theater isn't changed by the play that's performed in it. A mirror is not affected by the images that it reflects. You and I are going to be changed. Not just reflecting, we're going to be changed. And the transfiguration of Christ in Matthew 17 is a glimmer of that, if you will. Anyway, he continues, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. That word always is what you should take from this verse. We constantly pray for you. Present tense, continuing in other words. It's prayer that links the future with the present. Although the future of God's people is secure, we should not presume upon it. Live a life worthy of the destiny that God has in store. Paul is mindful that they still had to live out their faith in the hard world of men who oppose themselves to the things of God. I really like that. See, prayer is the way to link the present with the future. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do. Work of faith. I love that phrase. See, faith is always busy. Faith is not a static thing. It's a transitive verb. It implies action. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The name. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... You know, the name, the concept of name uh, was intended to sum up the whole character of a person. Well, it makes that particularly provocative because in Revelation chapter 2, we discover Jesus is going to give us a new name. He has a new name, and it's a secret. Something is Yorevavetsitknu. I sure hope not. That's hard to pronounce. But anyway, okay. Now, are we living our lives as a means of being glory to the Savior? And people ask me, is it okay for us to do this or that or the other thing? The question is, does it bring glory to the Savior? If you can answer that question, you got the answer to your question. Well, can, can a Christian play golf? Sure, I think so. Does it bring glory to the Savior? There are places where there are places it would, there's places it wouldn't. Are we really manifesting Christ as his trophies of grace? that we belong to Him and that He belongs to us. See, that's the whole thing. Are you demonstrating that we belong to Christ? And also that He belongs to us. That's the challenge. Well, can a Christian do X? Well, answer my, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. Does it bring glory to Christ? You answer that and I'll answer your question. Okay, now I'm going to cheat a little bit because we finished First Thessalonians. When we get to 2 Thessalonians, there's some very big issues we're going to be dealing with. So I want to take a sneaking peek of just a couple of verses of next chapter, partly because it colors some of the assertions I've made already, and partly to get those that are behind us so that we can really focus on the parts of the book that are going to bother you the most in our next session. 
So let's just take a quick preliminary glance at chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh boy, we're talking about his return then, aren't we? This suddenly became very eschatological, didn't it? We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by our gathering together unto him. What on earth could that mean? What are the possibilities that? We just finished 1 Thessalonians. We just finished chapter 5. What are we talking about here? Of course, the coming, the word is parousia. There are three words that you find used that are almost equivalent, but yet... By the way, the other thing I want you to carry away from our studies is a respect for precision. If you adopt the policy that there are no such things as absolute synonyms, you'll be very close to the truth. Things you think are synonymous usually turn out to be not quite synonymous, and often in the distinction is a very important distinction. There are three terms you encounter about the appearance or unveiling or presence of Jesus Christ. The first one is parousia. That's what's being used here. And that's with his presence, in effect. Parousia. That lays emphasis on the very presence of the Lord with his people. Okay. Another word is epiphania. That's the manifestation of the power and love of God. That occurs in a number of passages. And then, of course, there's apocalypsis, which really means the unveiling or the revelation of God's purpose and plan in the second coming. All three of these are used in one way or another in the second. The word here is parousia. It means it's, actually, it's emphasized His presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus, and by our gathering together unto Him. And that, of course, I, I assert, is referring to the rapture, the rapazzo. We've just gotten through 1 Thessalonians, which really elaborated on that concept. And by our gathering together him, he's referring to the harpazo, as was quoted in chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. And our being forever with the Lord thereafter. Remember in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you and bring you to myself and with me there ye shall be also. In Matthew 24 and Mark 13, that is also emphasized. Okay, our gathering together unto him. Okay, get to the second verse. This is very pivotal of our understanding of this entire letter. Paul is writing them, that ye be not so soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand. Your Bibles may say day of Christ, that's a mistranslation. The word is not Christos, it's kurios. It's day of the Lord. For some reason the King James has that twisted, but anyway that ye be not so soon shaken in mind. These people were upset. That's why Paul is writing the letter. Because he's in Corinth, he's heard that they've gotten all upset by something, by spirit, someone speaking prophetically, or by word, or by letter as from us. Either they had a letter that is a forgery, or someone is claiming that they had a private letter from Paul saying such and so. The point is, though, they're all upset. They're so upset that Paul feels compelled to write to them. Why? That ye be not so soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit and so forth. Okay. This is the first aorist passive infinitive of seleo, which means to agitate, to cause to totter like a reed. They're being, uh, he, he expected them to be more stable. They're not being stable, they're upset. And he's trying to respond to that. Why are you so troubled? by spirit, by word, or a letter from us, 
that the day of the Lord is at hand. Nor by letter as from us. Apparently this whole thing has been prompted by the circulation of a spurious letter, either actually or by hearsay. Apparently an intentional forgery, fretting that they were, that they were already in the day of the Lord. Now what you want to, when you study the coming chapters, what you want to try to answer, answer the question for yourself, what is it that they're upset about that caused Paul to have to write this letter? They have come to a conclusion that's got him upset. And Paul's going to try to straighten that out. But you won't understand him straightening it out until you understand what it is that they're upset about. You with me? You often don't understand the answer to a question if you know what the question is. So what is it they're bothered by is one of the questions that lurks behind our study here. One of the things we discover is that they think that they are already in the day of the Lord. Now I'm going to offer a suggestion, a possibility. If they were post-tribulationists, they wouldn't be upset. They wouldn't mind. I mean, they wouldn't like persecution, but that would cause them to be, boy, it's getting closer. No, they're upset because they think that they've either been mistaught or something's wrong because they didn't expect to be in the day of the Lord. Now, the persecutions they have haven't started the day of the Lord. They don't know that, right? But that's, a, that's going to turn out to be an important factor. How do you tell? He's going to show them next time. Why would that bother Christians in Thessalonica? You need, to, you need to come to terms with that to really understand what we're getting into here. See, Paul had plainly said that Jesus would come as a thief in the night. And had shown that the dead would not be left out in the harpazo. Okay, so had the harpazo happened? Apparently not. And yet, the day of the Lord has started. That contradicted their understanding of the eschatology. So Paul is going to straighten them out. But you need to understand what he's straightening out because we're all going to have that same concern. Evidently, someone claimed to have a private epistle from Paul which supported the view that Jesus was coming at once as that the day of the Lord is now present. And Paul is going to say, no, it's not, and here's why. You with me? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <music>